We at the Other Side of Hell podcast are not therapists, doctors, or counselors. We're just two guys who have been through hell and come out the other side. Please be aware, we may talk about drinking and drugging in detail. Anyone struggling with addiction may find this triggering. Our goal is to share our stories, explore our struggles, and connect with others through our experience. Remember, we are not alone. There is hope, and together we can get better. What's up, world? I'm Willie. And I'm Cameron. And today we have a very special guest coming in all the way from Panama on a little vacation. Kat, want to introduce yourself? Welcome to the show. Hey guys, what's up? Thanks for having me. Thank you. Uh, we met Kat through uh, Fausto. Yeah, Sober Fausto. Sober Fausto, who was on the show a while ago, and we got a, the opportunity to speak with her and then get her story and... She's an amazing person in recovery and helps out people with super early recovery, the difficult part, by running some uh, detox centers in California. Um, you want to tell us a little bit about that, Kat? Tell us who you are. Uh, sure, yeah. Um, first of all, thank you so much for having me. Such an honor. You guys are rad. I love what you're doing. Thank um, you. Definitely, definitely making a difference and uh, just love your vision um so yeah uh my name is kat and i am uh not originally from california but definitely feel more like a california girl than a colorado girl which is where (laughs) i was born and raised um but i own uh co-own uh treatment facilities too currently um laguna shores recovery and then uh the other one is called laguna coast and they're both uh, 30-day detox residential facilities, yes. uh, dual diagnosis, uh, mostly uh, drug addiction and mental health. Yes. Yes. And we need that. Yeah. Right? So we got your story. We got your story. And it, it's pretty uh, compelling. I love your story. I love your delivery of your story. You're a great speaker. And I'm excited to share that. But what, what we got out of it, the, the topic that we were able to pull out of it is something that I think... Uh, a lot of people need to uh, hear about and I need to talk about and I need to remember. Mm-hmm. Um, it's manif- Let's see, the manifestation of alcoholism outside of the drink, right? And so uh, listening to your story, we kind of came up with that topic. Um, Cameron, why did we come up with that topic? Well, I think that it's interesting. One of the things that you said specifically in your story is that you find uh, that if you're not in a fit spiritual condition, that your your disease or the alcoholism will manifest itself in money or shopping or you know all of these other ways. And I, I think that in my case, it's food, um, and I know that that's fairly common. Um, and I think that it's worth talking about because it's not something that I was able to immediately recognize in early sobriety. Right? Um, I really mm-hmm. had to get down the road a ways before. I was able to see like, oh my gosh, like I'm doing the same thing with this that I did with alcohol, with drugs. Like I'm, I'm, I'm filling the void with, with, uh, with an outside substance that isn't the drug or the drink. And I'm isolating, I'm lying, I'm plotting, I'm scheming. Like I'm doing all that same negative behavior. And more importantly is the negative consequences feel the same. I have that guilt. I have that shame. Like, have that emotional hangover, you know, for me, 
from a cookie, you know, or, or, or something like that. And so I think that it's worth talking about that it's, it's, uh, you know, like the disease will is cunning, baffling and powerful. And, um, and it has a way of sneaking up on us to the point where we don't even, you know, it's, it's not as easy to recognize. Um, and so I wanted to talk to you about that because I know that you also have, um, a lot of that in your story and you and you've, you've had to navigate a lot of that in your journey. And I think that, uh, that it is, it's a, it's a topic worth discussing. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so like, what has been yeah. your experience with that cat? Like, have you found like, um, just in your sober journey, these different obstacles that you've had to overcome in addition to, um, obviously staying sober? Yeah. I mean, um, such, I think it's such a great topic. People don't really talk about it enough because we assume that this is really about the drink or the drug or whatever it is that you're actually using. Um, but, you know, when you do actually do the research on, on the disease model of alcoholism, this is something that centers in our mind and that um, the, the substance that we pick up and that we choose to treat uh, that mental condition or that spiritual condition is, is really just a toy. Um, and it, it's just a, uh, you know, um, part of the, uh, I mean, it's, it, it's, it's part of the scenery. It's, it's not, you know, the whole play really. Mm-hmm. So I would say, you know, when I, um, I didn't really know, uh, about the manifestation of the, the mental obsession until, um, you know, I started to get some time in variety and realized, um, holy cow, like my, my thoughts are the same exact, uh, as they were before. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's that constant thinking of like, oh, that next thing, right. Um, once I get that relationship, once mm-hmm. I get that, that money, um, you know, and it's, it's this, um, dis-ease um, of, you know, uh, never, like never being enough. And my disease will never be satisfied as long as I continue to, um, you know, emotionally or, or things that I try to actually, uh, you know, um, satisfy or quench the thirst of my disease, which I believe is 100% spiritual. Mm-hmm. Um so, you know, I, when I first got into, uh, AA, I definitely, um, used, um, uh, alcoholism or I'm sorry, relationships mm. as a form to like quench that thirst. I had no idea, uh, if you guys listen to my story, which we did, um, made a pretty interesting mistake. <laughs> so I, uh, didn't actually, uh, understand the, um, that addiction can just morph to something else if I'm not treating it with spiritual principles. Mm. And so I got into a relation, I got a, into a relationship really quickly and um, actually felt uh, that he was the person I was supposed to be with. And I made some really terrible decisions. We went and got married and I was in full on self-will and believed that he was um, going to make my whole life better. And that's what my addiction looks like uh, in the form of um, career, in the form of money, in the form of anything. Uh, I believe that it's going to get me to that next step and that once I get there, I'll be satisfied. 
and it's just destruction if I'm in self-will. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, and I appreciate you bringing um, up relationships because I think that that is a, a very, very common one. I actually really like that part of your story because to me now, like hearing it from the perspective that I have now, as opposed to the perspective I may have had like in early recovery, when I hear that part of your story and our audience will get to hear it as well. Um, it's so obvious to me that that's still the disease, but like, I would not have ever picked that up at the time that I was, you know, at three weeks sober or, um, you know, in recovery as at the same stage that you were. And so, um, so I think that it's interesting because it is so easy to just let go of the alcoholic branch, um, and find another like so quickly because we don't, I mean, we really, we don't know what to do with ourselves. We don't know how to fill that hole. Um, and it is, like you said, it's, a, it's, a, for, I, I agree that it's a spiritual problem. Right. Um, and, uh, and, you know, you hear it said in meetings that it's a God size hole. Um, and, and, uh, and so I think that relationships is one, it's a, is yeah. a very, very popular one. Um, and, uh, and, and I think that there's a lot of other ways, right. That, yeah. we, that we see this manifesting itself. Willie, what's your experience like, um, in, in the disease manifesting itself? Uh, you know, a huge, a huge one for me. And you mentioned this one also in your story is, is I can get, I can get highly addicted to exercise. Like I, and, and I get super mm -hmm. excited about new information. Right. And so what, what ended up happening and it took me a long time. It took me years and years to finally get on a, uh, spiritual fitness routine. That's, that's not, physical and mentally based where I think I'm going to get to a point where I look a certain way that I'm going to be accepted and loved. Right. Because part, part of my disease is this feeling inside of my mind that I don't add up physically that my, my self-worth is based on, you know, my physical appearance or, mm. or something of that nature. And so I go through all these different fucking, all these, all these different brands of, of diet and fitness and, and when it doesn't work out, uh, it, I end up feeling like defeated and deflated. And, and I go back to, you know, what what comforts me for the moment, whether it's pornography or food, which are the two big ones for me yeah. in sobriety um, that that I've had to work on continuously over and over again. I go back to one of those things that that satisfy the flavor for the moment and it never lasts. And then I get a new Right. I, I get a new blade of, of information that excites me again. And I'm almost just as addicted to the feeling of that new excitement that I think something's going to work hmm. uh, as much as I am trying it for the first time, you know. And so fitness, fitness was a, was a big one for me. And I had to really um, try a bunch of different stuff and I had to be completely open about it. And I had to have a lot of ups and downs. But I used it alcoholically thinking that it's going to get me someplace that I'll finally feel worthy of love, you know, and, and that's just one of them for me because yeah. I like you, the, the, you know, the food was huge. My like, I think, and I, uh, we've shared about this. I think I, I used food before I used alcohol to crave the, to, to curb that mm -hmm. same monster inside of me. You know, that was the comfort thing. My mom gave me food as a, as a symbol of love. Like if I was sad, you know, she, she would get me something sweet or 
if you know if that that was my reward all the time or right. that was my special thing at my birthday or whatever and so food became really comforting for me until it stopped yeah and i started using food alcoholically and then i started using exercise alcoholically to try to combat the food that i was using alcohol right right well and and i think that that's an interesting i think that that's an interesting one especially exercise because and and i've i've been there as well like i also have that as a part of my story where i am just completely obsessed with fitness with with exercise and i think that it's it's an interesting one because when you look at somebody and you see that they're incredibly fit, you would never think like that person has a problem. Like, (laughs) you know what I mean? Like it, it's, it's not as easily to, it's not as easy to navigate as alcohol. Like obviously my alcoholism has drastic consequences, but you're going to tell me that like, there's something wrong with me, like exercising and, and going to the gym, like all the time. Like, and and so let's talk about that a little bit. I okay. want to unpack that a little bit because I think that yeah. like what when we say that, like what are we talking about? Like what about exercise or fitness can like what does that look like when we're doing it alcoholically? Do you have experience? Well, <laughs> Kat, you talked about, you know, being a bodybuilder and uh, again, the, the yeah. next the next thing using the next thing and bodybuilding was one of them for you. So what was your yeah. experience? I also, um, when I was in college, I attempted to stop drinking on my own. And I knew before I knew I had a problem and I started running marathons mm. and it's like some people pick up a hobby, right? <laughs> and they're like, Hey, I'm going to go for a jog every once in a while, or maybe a few times a week. I started running four to five hours a day. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, like to me, it, it's just, it's literally just, I'm, I'm here or I'm here, you know, I'm either doing nothing or I'm running five hours a day and, um, you know, have, have this self propulsion that is, is literally, I mean, to the extremes and that, that self tells me that is enough to tell me, you know, (laughs) that if I don't have God in my life to hear, I mean, in, in seconds and, uh, but, uh, you know, the bodybuilding thing was something too. I, uh, was approached by a coach at my gym. He said, I think you could do really well. And then eight weeks, um, I was doing a prep in my show and I was taking, you know, all of these, um, posing classes and I just jumped in and I was, um, obsessed you know, and, and that's the, I don't have, uh, like a middle, a middle, you know, mm-hmm. um, like there is no like third gear, you know, <laughs> like, <laughs> for me, I'm zero or a hundred real quick. Yeah. Well, let me ask you then, like on that, on that note, like what, what are some of the negative consequences then that come with that? Like, because, okay. So you're exercising four or five hours a day. Like what, I mean, you know, like, Hey, you must be super healthy. Like, yeah. But what, I mean, what are some of the negative consequences that come from, um, from exercising four to five hours a day or, or like being that obsessed with, with, uh, with that? I mean, that's a, that's a great question. Cause to most people, they would be like, I would love to have that problem. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right? right. But, but really, you know, our external condition to me is just a reflection of our internal 
So anytime I'm doing something obsessively and I'm just, I'm, I am, um, you know, so far to the left or to the right, my insides are a battleground mm. and there is no peace, right? Mm. Like anytime you see me doing something to the absolute extremes, uh, you know, it's just a, a reflection of like, okay, what's really going on there? You know, yeah. um, oh, yeah. it's not necessarily, you know, sure, maybe the physical is good, but how about helping people? Mm -hmm. You know, how on earth can I possibly be thinking about anyone else when I'm spending five to six hours a day at the gym? Mm. And that's just what I'm physically doing. How much am I actually obsessing about my body? What am I putting in it? Um, you know, what it looks like. I mean, that's, you guys are just seeing the external ramifications of me, you know, acting on my thoughts, but here's war zone constantly going and going and going. And that teach me that I'm not in charge anymore. And I mean, really, I, I didn't know the power that I was looking for, uh, that, you know, when I let God into my life, things just seem to flow mm. and they just seem to balance out. I can always tell when I'm in charge because it is from one extreme to the other. Mm. And, uh, my, my mental condition is just constant, just going, 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 going. Um, and that will manifest itself into the physical, into material, you know, shopping a lot. Um, you know, that is something that, um, that I can just tell, Hey, what's, you know, cats trying to be in charge here when there's a lot of external chaos going on. Um, usually when God's in charge, it's, it just flows. Yeah. Yeah. There seems to be like a little bit of an off button when we're in that spiritual space versus like what you were talking about. You know, for me, I know that anytime, like if I go back to the exercise thing, you know, um, I've shared on this uh, on this platform and, and Cameron knows, you know, uh, for like 14 months, I went to the gym every day and for uh, for 11 or 12 months, I did a burpee session every day without missing a day. Mm -hmm. And I, I was working out this insane amount of time. And, and, you know, some of the negatives of that were like what you were talking about, I was disconnected from people in my life. Mm -hmm. Right. And so if, if that was interrupted, if my exercise or my workout was interrupted, then I became bitter mm. and, and resentful and, and usually like hostile in some way. And then I was fucking tired all the time. Yeah. Like I could, I could never yeah. really gain, like you were saying, like, like, where did I have room for other people in my life because of the obsession? Mm -hmm. And, and, and when it comes to like shopping and being spiritual, spiritually connected, I get when, when I'm in the obsession, it's almost like gambling. Like, like there's this, there's this weird high energy that fucking comes from me, whether I'm shopping online or in person, when I'm overspending and buying shit that I don't need. I start getting high on it and I have this trigger warning, this red flag that I battle with inside of my mind going, okay, I'm not in a spiritual space to be fucking spending this money or, or, you know, buying this stuff. <laughs> I don't need it, but I'm fucking doing it anyway. And, and that's, that's totally. where the disease has manifested itself in my life. And there usually comes some 
form of regret afterwards. Like right. I feel this, I feel this, uh, this tension inside of me where I feel like an, an amends needs to be made. And I reflect on it afterwards and I'm like, holy fuck, I just went on a bender, you know? And, and it's been a long time since I've went on an alcoholic yeah. or a drug bender. Like mm-hmm. it's been years and years, mm-hmm. but it, it hasn't been that long since I've been on a, on a food bender a food, or, or, yeah. or an anger bender, you know, mm-hmm. like, like, like anger is a huge part of my alcoholism. Like I can, I can get fucking zinging on mm-hmm. anger and it's something that I have to really pay attention to, uh, and and try to use appropriately because I'm not saying that you should never get angry. There's some things that we should probably protect our our lives against, you know, and some things that are done that aren't right. But I never need to act out in rage like that will never get me anywhere. But rage is something that I can fucking use alcoholically. It's mm. something that I've needed to to work on. And so I appreciate you being able to talk about that stuff, you know, so. Um, because I can mm-hmm. relate with it so much. There's so many different ways that that I try to take something from out there to fix what's going on in here. Right, right, right. Exactly. Yeah, and I and I find that to be true as well. And and one thing that I think is interesting is is as we're as we're here talking about it, like it feels like there has to be a a positive way to apply some of this stuff, right? Like, cat, you. From what from what we've been able to see and from what we know about you, you um, you have an incredible work drive, um, and you have a, a, a wonderful work ethic that you said in your story was instilled to you, you know, from your upbringing. Um, let's talk about like, do you feel like this same obsession drives some of your success in a way, um, mm-hmm. and uh, and is that good or bad? That is such a good question. <laughs> um, you know, I, I struggle with that too, because I, uh, I always, I, my goal every day I wake up and I say, God, lead me, you know, give me someone to help. And mm. I want you to be in charge. And I, I do believe that it's, um, that when I'm able to marry my work ethic, not necessarily my alcoholic obsession, Mm. um, but my work ethic with my purpose, which I believe is God given that I'm unstoppable and I'm in a state of flow that allows me to help people that allows me to be present, that allows me to be a light that allows me to, um, speak truth and kindness to people. And those are things that, um, you know, are not of my own. And I believe that if, you know, sometimes I wake up at 4.30 to meditate, I'm incredibly, um, you know, when I'm at home, I'm incredibly driven. I have a lot of uh, goals and ambitions. I know that in the past I was, I had similar goals and ambitions um, as far as uh, just, just wanting to um, achieve certain levels of, uh, of success, but it shifted a little bit where now it's, it's really more focused towards helping others. And that might sound a little weird, but I believe that I don't experience burnout because I'm getting power from a source that is not from me. Mm. Whereas before, um, I was just so bloodthirsty for success and materialism and these things. And I would just, it was just like this constant struggle of 
you know, the next thing, the next job, the next relationship. And, and I feel finally, and it's taken me some time. I mean, I'll have seven years in November. And I would say it's only been about the past two to three years that I really feel like I'm tapping into the source and I feel like a state of flow that I'm, I'm, I'm just on the path that I'm supposed to be on. And that um, God has given me a certain level of energy, which is a lot <laughs> and resources and a team of people that have similar goals and visions uh, that are also, um, you know, to help people that, you know, with God as our source, it's it, the obsession of all the other things just totally goes away. Mm. Yeah. Oh, I love that. And, yeah. and, I, and I think what I, what I really appreciate about what you just said and what, and what we're talking about is the ability to sort of marry your work ethic with your purpose, because I think that it can be confusing, like sort of figuring all this stuff out is a process, right? Like it can be so easy for me to, um, to, to wonder if like, Hey, like, am I doing the right thing here by focusing solely on my career and, and maybe not spending as much time with my family? Like, navigating that stuff can really, really be tricky. And for me, it's like there's somewhere deep down fundamentally um, that I, I have in me this conscience that tells me like what I should and should not be doing. When I was out there drinking and drugging, like I knew that I was not doing the right thing, right? Which is why like every every morning a hangover would involve so much guilt and shame. And I was so quick to mm-hmm. to douse that with another drink or a drug. And it's like, now I kind of, I will use that in a way as the same sort of guide, right? Like I'm going to decide whether I have that guilt and shame, um, by, by like, I'm going to decide whether I'm doing the right thing. Like if I have that same guilt and shame and if I do, then it's probably something that I shouldn't be doing. Like that's been one thing Mm -hmm. that I've been able to least turn to or rely on, um, to, to sort of navigate some of that territory. The other is having all these wonderful people around me that have been through it, that have had to navigate it as well, that I can always just turn to and say, Hey man, when you were like, have you ever dealt with something like this? Or like, if you have, like, what was it like Mm -hmm. for you and, and how did you deal with it? And kind of use that as a gauge to, to really, figure it all out because man, I, I cannot do it alone. I'm just so glad that, that I don't have to. Yeah. So it's been, uh, it's been interesting. There's a, uh, there's a lot of things that I think that we've talked about, um, as far as, um, you know, different ways of the disease manifesting itself. But I want to switch gears a little bit because what we talked about is that the way to combat all that stuff yeah. is sort of through these spiritual principles. So let's talk a little bit about what exactly that is. Like um, for you, Kat, like what are some of the biggest spiritual principles that you apply um, that really keep that at bay? Yeah. Uh, so I think it helps if, if I uh, provide a little bit of context of what didn't work for me, what I thought it was, was going to church, right? I thought that that's where you found God. Um, I thought that I would find it in self-help books. I thought I would, you know, find this uh, this power that I've been seeking um, 
through external circumstances, kind of like what we've been talking about. And it's only been through the program of recovery that I found through a series of actions that I've actually been able to tap into something higher than myself. And so um, I don't actually know what actions the the ones that are working that aren't. But, um, mm. you know, every morning I hit my knees before I hit my feet. Uh, I pray um, constantly and I ask God to, to um, be in charge and to uh, help me help somebody that day. Uh, you know, the more of them, less of me, as mm. I, I just tell God, um, please just you be communication with other alcoholics. I believe that our personality is shaped by our personal reality, which my personal reality is anything I want it to be. And so when I want to get into recovery, you know, I need to be around people that are sober and successful. And so I'm in constant communication with other um, sober, successful alcoholics throughout the day. Uh, I believe so much in the power of meditation that has absolutely changed my life. Mm. Um, you know, asking, uh, I am, uh, in constant communication with sponsees and a sponsor. I was taught that if, you know, he's on one side, sponsor on the other, that I'm in a safe place. Mm. And, um, the meetings and fellowship of recovery have absolutely saved my life. So those are things I do on a daily basis. It's hard to go to meetings out here. Um, they only have one a week Mm. on this Island. Uh, but I, um, you know, can zoom in. Um, I know that meetings are for the newcomer. I don't need a meeting. Uh, you know, for me, I want, I believe that I got sober so that I could go live my life and share this gift that I've been given. And sometimes that gift is positivity. You know, sometimes that gift is I want to make every single person better who meets me today, Mm. that they're going to be stoked that they ran into me, you know, like that's not from me. Like when I was new to this program, there was no thought of other people, let alone, you know, wanting to make their lives better. It was constantly what my needs, Mm -hmm. my want, what am I going to, and even in sobriety, I can get like that. I can wake up just a bloodthirsty, what am I going to get today? But when I'm able to ask God, you know, for, for guidance and direction, and I, he's able to, to use me as the tool that I believe that he wants to use me for all bets are off. You know, I, I just, I believe that he will use our weakness um, for all things good. Yeah, it sounds like, it sounds like you start your day with humility and move your intention into service. And and through that you're able to tap into that power through humility and service and then uh, you have the courage and the ability to give that stuff away. Would you agree? Right? Those be Yeah, I think that's a great yeah. Yeah. That's awesome. You know, I think humility is hard for for alcoholics. Um who, you know, for, for me, I want to be able to, uh, it's not necessarily that I think I'm too good for help. It's that I don't want to bother anybody. I don't, you know, I don't, I don't, Mm -hmm. you know, um, especially, uh, for me, like, you know, one of the things that I appreciate about you is, is that try as you might, you never did find that source in a church. And, and I think that's a lot of people's story. And I know that some people have, in yeah. recovery have found that source in a church, but that was my story too. You know, I couldn't find it through 
mm-hmm. a church or the holy holy uh, teachings that my family seemed to to be able to find that through what I found is you know connecting with people like you and Cameron and and the newcomer as you said being of service and and understanding at a deep level that I cannot do this alone mm-hmm. and that I don't quite understand right. where this power of me being able to stay sober comes from but um, obviously it's not directly from me or I would have done it a long fucking time ago, right? right. If it was something that I could do, I would have done it the <laughs> totally. first time I wanted to try it. Uh, but it took a lot for me to be beaten down enough to be at, willing to ask for help like you're talking about. And I really appreciate that spot of service that you're talking about where you have a sponsor on one time, side and a sponsee on another. And what that does is it creates a, a a chain, if you will, a, a strong bond of, of connection and service between more than you and more than them, you know? And, and to me, that is definitely mm-hmm. a power that's greater than I am because mm-hmm. I can learn just as much from my sponsor as I can from my sponsee. And both of those totally. can, can, can learn a lot from me in my ability to, to, you know, wake up and be humble and ask to stay out of my own fucking way for the day. Hmm. It's a big deal. You know, I love that Mm -hmm. spiritual principle and I don't know what else to call it, you know, other than, than a spiritual principle. Yeah. Yeah. I think humility is so, I mean, honestly, like not many of us get sober without humility, but for us to hold, hold, hold onto it and maintain that humility throughout our recovery, um, is a completely separate thing, right? It's, is is the longer we go sober, oftentimes the less um, humility we might we might have, and and the more ego becomes involved. And and for me, like when I step into that tor- territory where my ego is becoming involved, and I start thinking that I'm doing this, um, I'm in dangerous territory. Yeah, like it's not it's not solid footing mm-hmm. for me, and so I really do have to step back and I've had my ass kicked enough <laughs> forced, right? It's called like, forced humility. Yeah, sure. Exactly. Like I've had to, you know, go into a treatment program a number of times. And after, you know, so many times as it goes, there's a, there's a point where you say, okay, like obviously I don't know what the fuck I'm doing. And, and, and that, you know, like I really have to hold on to that sometimes. Like I really have to say like my best decisions got me here. Like it is not me anymore. I'm not running the show. Mm -hmm. Somebody else has to just take the reins and let this party go wherever it's going to because, um, because I'll fuck it up. (laughs) I will fuck it up. Well, and have have you found also that it's that it's kind of that same thing with, with every area, not with just the alcohol, but, um, when, when I'm eating alcoholically, I'm, I'm at some point forced into humility. Oh, you know, yeah. when I'm spending alcoholically, I'm yeah. at some point forced into humility. You know, when, when the pornography is out of control, I am forced into humility. And, and it comes from a, it, it ends up being a place of desperation where, again, whatever it is I'm trying to use for a solution stops working and I end up empty aside again. Mm-hmm. Right. Like, like, it seems like that's the cycle. And as long as I stay where you're talking about, I don't have that feeling of emptiness and, and desperation. Um, right. It doesn't mean every day I'm just wake up fucking jazzed like you were talking about. I wake up an alcoholic every morning, and a lot of times I wake up, and, and, and the way that my alcoholism manifests itself in the morning for me is usually in some state of fear. And I've been able to recognize that 
over a course of many years of like looking at like, what do I really think about the first thing that I wake up? And, and when I took that on as a, as a um, project, uh, it was something that I wanted to know about myself because I didn't really know what I thought about as soon as I woke up. But I found that usually um, if I'm not paying attention to it, I will wake up with some sense of impending doom. And that that's a fucking shitty way to start your day. Mm-hmm. It yeah, really yeah. is, you know. Yeah. But today when I wake up and, and that yeah. sense of impending doom is there, I can do what you said and recognize that that's part of my disease that I can't do this alone and that there's some things that I'm going to need to do in order to not act out and create that doom that I feel impending in my life because I will fucking find the doom that I'm feeling if I look hard enough Mm -hmm. and I don't like it. I don't like that. For sure. Yeah. I like, I like being happy. The big book says, right. The big book says, beware of the deliberate manufacturer of misery, right? And for (laughs) me, that's up here. Like I will, at my, left to my own devices, I will just work sweatshop hours in that manufacturer of Mm. misery, you know? And, and I like to just sit in the, the dis-ease and discomfort and irritable restlessness and discontent. And, um, you know, the, to me, those are those are things when I get into a really negative headspace, which is not the person I am at all. I know, hey, I need to do a spot check inventory. What, what's going on? What's off? Drop to my knees. Ask for some higher power to, to come in because that is a pretty good indicator that that somebody else's me is taking taking control again. Mm-hmm. I, I'm in control. Mm-hmm. I got this. Yeah, you fucking right, got right. this. Right, right. We're good. We're yeah, good. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And I and I I've said that like a thousand times on this show. It's like I will find something to hate myself for every time, yeah. or I'll find something to be yeah. mad at, or I'll find something to be angry about, or hate you for, or and if I ha- if I can't find anything, I will make something up because that's what the disease does to me. Like it will find something and if it can't find something, it will make something up because it is determined to feel that way. It is determined to get me to drink. And and something that you said in your story, which is something I've said all the time, which is like it wants to see me dead, but it will settle for me yeah. drunk. Yeah. Um and drunk, uh, right. And I really appreciate that. We're we're uh, we're about to get into your war story, but before we do, I want to ask you, um, just because I it might be out of my own curiosity, um, but it's also I think something that could um, be helpful for listeners. Like what when we talk about the spiritual principles um, and things that we do to keep this at bay, um, you mentioned meditation. And you said that you're you know you you're you're um, avid meditator what does that look like for you because we i know that there's all kinds of different meditations and we were talking earlier about how the big book of alcoholics anonymous doesn't really specify you know how to meditate um and there's so much meditation in the world like what does that look like for you can i ask you sure thank goodness the big book doesn't dictate things like that (laughs) yeah lord knows what it would look like in the very very good answer absolutely Um, uh so, you know, I'm, I'm a seeker of knowledge and, uh, I, I love, um, Joe Dispenza is a, uh-huh. somebody, he's a, um, Good dude. He's a meditation guru. Yeah. Neuro neuroscientist by trade talks a lot about, you know, re 
rewiring your brain. Hello, genius. And um, yeah, literally, he's he's changed my life. I listen to a lot of guided meditation. Yeah. Um, but you know, I think I think we set the bar so high that we think like meditation has to be this like sitting down for an hour and a half mm -hmm. levitating, and it's like no, you you can literally just go for a walk. You know, prayer to me is asking God um, and, and speaking to God and meditation is listening. Yep. And sometimes, you know, it, it doesn't have to be this huge thing. I very much in rituals, um, you know, it's the root word of spiritual. So I believe mm. in rituals. And, uh, you know, for me, uh, dedicating as I built a Zen den in my house um, and I have it. this whole... Uh, <laughs> room that I've dedicated to meditation that has like really kind of driven me to want to spend time in there. And I, um, when I'm back at home, I do usually an hour in the morning um, and an hour in the evening and meditation is just like anything else. It's a muscle, um, you know, and if, if you use it, um, you know, it'll get bigger and stronger. And if you don't, you'll lose it. So, um, you know, I think that there's so much good stuff. There is no one right way. It is whatever works for you. Mm -hmm. uh, YouTube is a beautiful thing. Guided meditations to me. And just the fact that I can sit down and just try to quiet my brain for 10 minutes. And then tomorrow I'll do 12 minutes. And then the next day, you know, and just work your way up. Oh, yeah. Um, you know, you'll start to see the positive impacts of that and hopefully, you know, get to the point where I'm at where I absolutely won't go a day without it. And before it was like, that's weird. I can, I'd rather kill myself than listen to my own <laughs> thoughts for an hour. <laughs> yeah. Well, thank you for that. I'm, I'm excited to share yeah. with everybody where you came from to, to becoming what you are today. So thank I think, you. I think it's appropriate that we roll into your story now and let everybody listen okay. to it. So without cool. further ado, here is Kat's War Story. This week's war story is brought to you by Brainwashed Coffee. Brainwashed Coffee is a damn good coffee with a damn good cause. 50% of all proceeds go back into the recovery community, which makes it a perfect partner for us here at the Other Side of Hell podcast. With delicious blends like coffee commitment and found a new freedom, we drink a hell of a lot of it here, and it gives us the energy we need to deliver a quality show. Right now, you can get $5 off your coffee purchase at brainwashedcoffeeco.com using promo code OTHERSIDE. Clean your bean. Brainwashed Coffee. Now, without further ado, here's this week's War Story. All right. Hey, guys. What's up? My name is Kat. I am an alcoholic and drug addict for sure. Um, super happy to be here. Thank you so much for asking me to participate in my recovery. Uh, I am honored always honored and humbled to speak uh about my struggles and situation my my hope is that you know this might help somebody um maybe inspire you uh, maybe give you an idea that um you know the hopeless situation that you're in right now whether you're sober or still uh in recovery that you know you don't have to stay there so that you can uh judge me properly i have a sobriety date of November 1st, 2015. That is not a date I chose. I tried to choose my date several times, actually. <laughs> it never worked. Uh, you know, I don't know why God gave me this date. I really don't. I truly feel that it is uh, a power greater than myself that has done this for me. 
And uh, for that, I am forever grateful. And, you know, I, uh, I qualify myself as an alcoholic. Um, I also loved pills. I loved powder. I really loved anything that made me not feel me at the moment. So, uh, you know, really at that time, just uh, whatever you had, I would do it. And, you know, just as long as I didn't have to feel the way that I did at that moment. And, uh, you know, that can, that can be um, even uh, shopping or money. I mean, for me, that is my alcoholism. That is really just the irritable restlessness and discontentedness that um, I suffer from on a day-to-day -day basis, unless I'm treating my alcoholism. I grew up in an amazing home. My family was great. I have two loving parents. They both worked. I did not, uh, you know, like I had to earn everything that I had. Uh, my family, you know, was about um, having a very uh, like strong work ethic. I have a brother who's four years older than me. And uh, it's so interesting, you know, because he and I really have different recollections of our childhood. And as I get a little bit more time in the program, I am remembering things uh, differently and, and God is changing my perspective. But I do recall like when I first came in the program and identifying a lot as being like very lonely as a little girl, uh, feeling like I didn't quite belong, feeling like I didn't really like belong to certain friend groups or that I didn't really understand where I fit in, in the neighborhood. And just like really what I understand today is like feeling uncomfortable in my own skin, even as a little girl, which I didn't know um, was abnormal, right? Most of us don't like, we just take our experiences and we just think like, I mean, we don't have anything to compare it to until we get older and we start talking about these things. Uh, but you know, when I started to have, uh, these feelings of, you know, sadness and like just depression, uh, my parents took me to a psychiatrist when I was like 13 and they put me on birth control because I thought it was hormones, which it totally could have been. Uh, but I like, I really, really identify with feeling that like sense of just like sadness. Like I don't really get where I go here. Um, like just, just a, a really weird sense of not belonging. And when I was 13, I, I guess you can say I was a late bloomer because that was my first drunk. Um, my friend invited me to her house for the weekend. And it was like this huge event. Her brother was having a keg party. He was an older, uh, upperclassman. All of us had crushes on him. Her parents were going to be out of town for the weekend. And we were just like, uh, plotting and having this, we were, I think we we're like three or four years younger. So sixth or seventh grade. I don't know what 13 is anymore. Wow. That's aging myself. But I, uh, I just remember we were like, so excited for this hugely like anticipated event of them having a cake party. He promised that we could come and that he would like cover for us as long as we stayed in her room, he would bring us the beer and we would just be able to, uh, have a night to enjoy alcohol, but we had to stay, you know, upstairs. So the night came and there was all of this anticipation and excitement. And, you know, the girls, I think, uh, like were excited about just like being able to hang out with upperclassmen, for me though, when he brought those red solo cups in and 
I started to feel the effects of that alcohol, I realized very quickly that that was something I had needed probably 10 years prior. You know, I, it was like somebody had taken my black and white world and put it into color for, for me. Like I had literally put an oxygen mask over my mouth and I was like, <gasps> I can breathe because I started to feel okay for once in my own skin. I started to actually feel like, okay, this is, wait, I'm, I don't care if they are judging me. I don't care if they're, you know, uh, looking at me in this weird way, I feel really good. And I'm, you know, as the night progresses, I don't realize it at the time, but I'm not drinking like my fellows, the girls, you know, are, are like feeling a little weird and they're getting sick and they stop and they pass out and I'm starting to feel a little weird and I'm getting sick and I'm drinking as much as humanly possible. And it is the, you know, I am on an all time high. And then to top it off, I'm, um, uh, <laughs> I kiss her older brother <laughs> and it was like literally the, he had been my crush for years. And it was like, I, I, had the best night of my entire life. Like I chased that feeling for probably 20 years. And the next day we woke up, the girls came to, and they're like, man, this was like awful. And what we, I can't believe what I did. I never want this to happen again. This was just embarrassing. And I can't, do you remember that you did this? And I was just thinking to myself, like, is there still alcohol in the house? Like, what are we doing? we still have hours left until your parents get here. And, you know, my new MO was to maintain that feeling of freedom and uh, really just to numb out the way that I was feeling for several years. You know, I, I, um, I continued to party like that, uh, not like my fellows, uh, just continued to really take things to the extreme, hoping that you know, I, I would just find something that could make me, you know, feel that way that I did that night. And, you know, it was uh, a strange time because I was like smoking weed in sixth grade, like starting to do weird stuff like that. Like I'm a white girl from like Denver, Colorado. Like we don't really do that. That's not like a normal thing for us, but I sought it out because I was so uncomfortable in my own skin. And then as I got into high school, I started to get into sports. I've always been, you know, an athlete. I've always been into um, academics too. And I had a coach. I was the captain of a varsity, uh, a varsity team actually from freshman year to senior year. And my coach uh, would say like, there is zero tolerance for drinking, zero tolerance for drugs. We don't go to parties. Like we are not the same, you know, as other schools, like we do things differently here. We are a sport, we are athletes and, uh, we will not, we are separating ourselves from everyone else. And that was a hard pill for this girl to swallow because I was wanting to smoke weed in the locker room. You know, I, I didn't really understand. And uh, cheerleading was my life. You know, cheerleading was everything to me. And I was willing to uh, sacrifice, um, you know, everything because I just wanted to feel better. And so on weekends, I was drinking. Uh, a lot of times I was partying. Sometimes I was doing it by myself. You know, I never really saw it as a, an issue, really just, I saw it more as, you know, that I'm the party girl, I'm the fun girl, and I have to hide it because, you know, people didn't really approve it of it. And I had this, this like anchor of something that meant so much to me. And, you know, the big book talks about living, leading a double life and that, you know, we're kind of experts at it. 
And since some of my earliest, you know, memories in high school, I just remember how, how easily I could do that. Right. I could have this very successful athletic career and also, um, in academics, you know, I was in, I was in a lot of AP advanced placement classes and I just remember, you know, in like this weird, like pit of my stomach that I was like this wild child, but I had to appear a certain way and just was, was this very like weird tension between like what I really wanted to do and what I knew it was right. And so when it got time to me graduating, I was, uh, really, you know, mostly my mom, uh, was concerned that I wasn't going to handle myself in college because she saw the flip side. She saw me coming home drunk. She saw me, uh, you know, driving, uh, under the influence sometimes, or, or, you know, like found alcohol in my car and she, she would just tell me that college was going to be an absolute nightmare for me. And, um, you know, instilled a lot of fear in me. And I was, uh, you know, not planning on, on cheering in college or doing any sports. So I knew that I wouldn't really have that anchor and God put, um, an amazing man in my life. And I married a preacher's son. Uh, we got engaged when I was 19 and we met right before I went to college. And I really kind of gave my life to the church and not that that wasn't authentic. It totally, um, you know, was transformative for me. However, I just remember feeling uh, that same tension as I did before, right? Like I would go to church and I just, it was almost like this feeling of uh, that I, I didn't really feel the way that they had felt. Like other people were like in church and, and having this like amazing experience. And I just, I almost felt like I was having imposter syndrome and I didn't really know about alcoholism. We had never talked about it in my family. It had never really come up as a, as something that was like a genetic disease. Uh, you know, I really still just believe that I was this partier. And so, uh, I remember we would have his family over for, you know, college, like we'd have dinner at our house. I was a Christian woman in college and his family would bring a bottle of wine or we would buy one bottle of wine. And I would have one glass and just like be looking at everyone else's glass the entire time. Like, what are we doing? Are you going to finish that? Is there another bottle in the house? Like what? Oh, hold on. Is she really going to waste that entire glass? And it ruined my night. It literally, I would, I would just obsess, obsess, obsess about the alcohol that was still on the table or not on the table or, or whatever. And so it got to the point where I was just like, it's like, you know, lays, you can't have just one. So I just stopped having alcohol. And, um, I, uh, had no idea that like alcoholism is the obsession of the mind. I really thought that it had something to do with the quantity. Right. And, and that's, that is like, if anything, you know, times during college when I limited the amount that I took, and then I, I was able to take an inventory of what was going on through my mind. Like a normal person doesn't have that, that mental obsession. They're able to just, you know, have, have one and, and leave it or or drink for the taste. And so I stopped drinking. And then, uh, you know, when I got into, um, I graduated from college and I got a really great job that actually, uh, allowed me and required me to travel and entertain clients. And now, you know, it was popping because I didn't know that our alcoholism is progressive, fatal, and, uh, really just continues to, they say it's, you know, in the, in the parking lot doing pushups, whether I'm drinking or not, 
it's waiting for me. And it has just been in remission this whole time. And so when I start to drink, as I graduate college, I am just lighting things on fire. You know, I literally, uh, started to extend my trips. I started to not come home at night. I started to act in these ways that were not in alignment with who I was, but I convinced myself, these are just my, my wild oats that I need to sow. This is just the stuff that, you know, I didn't get to do in college. I didn't get to do in high school because I had to hide it all the time. And unfortunately, uh, I, you know, convinced that man that I, um, wasn't the right woman for him and that we got married too young and, uh, he fought really hard for me and did not want to divorce me and really, um, actually insisted that I went to my first Alcoholics Anonymous meeting, which I didn't even remember till about two years ago. As funny as that is, I totally blacked that out. I went to my first meeting in my twenties and I was pissed and I sat in the back and I was like, this is the weirdest thing. I don't belong here. Uh, but whatever, I'll do it for you. And I put this poor man through hell and finally, uh, convinced him to divorce me. And then it was on because now I had no husband, I had no sports and it was really this feeling of I I'm free. Right. And, um, you know, I tend to like tell myself that freedom is being able to do anything that I want whenever I want, but really that's just lawlessness. And it led me to some really, really dark places. And I, I was pissed at God. I really was. I was like, where were you God? Like I married a preacher's son. I uh, got baptized. I was helping in the church. And like, I thought I was supposed to find God in church. Like, okay, fine. If I can't find you in church, then I'm going to go try to find you, you know, at the bottom of the bottle or in a, a sack of pills, or, you know, maybe I'll have a spiritual experience with some cocaine or Molly. And I did that for about seven years. And, uh, you know, because I'm type a personality and I have, uh, you know, I'm extremely driven and I have a really, um, amazing, uh, work ethic that I, I got from my family. You know, I never really found myself without a job. That doesn't mean that I wasn't fired or I didn't totally fuck off opportunities that probably could have been life-changing. Uh, I, I just always hustled. That's always been my thing. And so I, again, rationalized my drinking, my, and my behavior, because I said, well, I've got a job and I've, you know, I've never been to jail. I never got a DUI. I have a degree, <laughs> like I'm good. And I just continued to find myself jumping from, you know, relationship to state to career. Uh, I started doing like bodybuilding. I started to just do weird things because that is what my alcoholism looks like. It is like, I can bring everything to the altar and sacrifice everything to my alcoholism thinking, oh, it's just this next thing, right? It's just that next job. It's just that next man. It's just that next, uh, you know, relationship or, um, plastic surgery or whatever it is. And it's never enough. My alcoholism wants me dead. And drunk, it will settle for drunk. And so, uh, you know, I, I really struggled with, um, this like feeling of, Hey, uh, you know, am I, am I really an alcoholic? I would, I would be able to stop sometimes for like a week, or I would like go, you know, to a wedding and I would tell myself I'm not going to drink. And I would, you know, probably, 10% of the time actually be able to do that. <laughs> I was also, you know, doing Molly in the bathroom, but you know, I never actually talked about that. And, um, I would just tell myself like, Oh, I can have just one. So that makes me a non-alcoholic. Right. And, 
uh, virgins don't question if they're pregnant. Like I really toyed with the thought of alcoholism far too much to not be an alcoholic. My non-alcoholics don't even question if they're alcoholic. They just know. And, you know, I got myself into a situation, uh, towards the end of my alcoholism and, um, I was, I was working at this supplement company in Atlanta and, you know, as I don't know if you can relate, but we get into this place where we start to attract people and, and opportunities really based on the energy that we're putting out. And I, you know, was putting out crazy energy because we had an open bar at our work. There were pills and powder everywhere. You know, it was really encouraged that we party with clients or we hang out with clients and spend time with them in strip clubs and bars. And that's where deals get done. I was flying back and forth to Vegas. And I had this amazing friend who I love to party with. Uh, I call him Snaggletooth because he's long in the tooth, older dude, one of the greatest sales guys I know. And I remember, you know, they talk about these moments of clarity where we uh, come into whether it happens before, or after we get sober, but it's like this, like, you know, like, just a message from, from the divine or from the universe or from God. And, um, really it was like an eye opener. And one of them for me was I went into, um, Snaggletooth's office and there was a pile of powder on his desk. And sometimes he would sleep at his desk. Sometimes he would sleep under his desk. I mean, we would be out all hours. Like he was really kind of known as the office, like alcoholic. And I went into his office. He was on the phone and sat right in front of him. And I just did like the whole pile just mainlined it. And he stopped the conversation that he had on the phone and he dropped the phone. He's like, you have a problem. <laughs> I was like, I, I have, I have a problem. Like, do you even have an address? You slept here last night. You know, I have a degree. I have two parents that I, you know, grew up in a home that's not separate families and like just rationalize my behavior. And I had no idea, you know, how monumental that moment would be later because he was somebody that I really considered to be kind of the worst and found myself, uh, you know, him saying to me like, wow, you have an issue. So I, uh, my issue was not me, obviously it was my place. So I moved to California. I said, I'm going to get out of this, this weird industry. I need to go back into uh, business and software and, and be more conservative. And I'm going to move to a beach town and be by my brother and his kids. And I wrote myself this letter on my way to California. And I, I could have passed a lie detector test that I was not going to drink, that I was going to come here. And I was going to have a fresh start. And I said that, you know, this is the time, this is the place starting things over. And I landed in California the next day was unpacking my stuff. My pod was still in my driveway. And these two guys walk by with red solo cups and cornhole. And they're like, Hey, are you new? I'm like, yes. Like, come on over that night, you know, hook up with the local drug dealer. Cause I literally have Bluetooth for drug dealers. Like even in sobriety, like I'll find you, right. I'll find you. You'll find me. You're just my people. I love you. And, uh, he and I ended up being together for a few months, my brother and his wife and his beautiful children, um, you know, had to see front row some like really gnarly stuff. And it was incredibly damaging to our relationship. So, uh, you know, I'll fast forward. I, I get into, um, another really tumultuous relationship. I was living in park city at the time. I was drinking daily. I was 
literally um, wanting to kill myself, but didn't have the balls to do it and was absolutely hopeless and was like, is this it? Like waking up every single day, just like, is this it? Is this really it? And uh, just drinking enough to get through the day and just waking up thinking, man, I just, I just got to make it, just got to make it to like 930 tonight where I can, you know, pass out. I can take some uh, night, night uh, sedatives and just get through the day. Me and this guy get in a huge fight. Um, and I am uh, about to drive home to California and out of nowhere, I get a call from Snaggletooth. And it'd probably been two years at this point out of nowhere. And he's calling to check up on me. Cause that's what he does. He's like, Hey kid, how are you? And I'm lying. Oh, I'm great. You know, I have all my stuff in the back of my car, I'm bawling. I've, I'm scared to death. I, you know, I'm like, I'm barely holding it to get together and telling him, Oh my gosh, I'm great. I'm thriving. <laughs> and, you know, he's like, that's great. You know, um, I'm actually a year sober. I was like, what, what do you, Oh, you mean like from Coke and like, ecstasy he's like no from everything I was like what do you mean why it's like because it's just it's I don't know it's just amazing my life is amazing he's like I tried to stop for a really long time but I had to get down to the causes and conditions those were his exact words and they rung so true to me because I had tried to stop for so long and I just couldn't stay stopped I couldn't and I had no idea what I was going through uh, at the time, I had no idea that I was up against this thing called alcoholism that is a, like soul sickness and that literally is threefold, right? It's, it's, it's body, mind, and soul. And that, you know, I really um, had no idea that like I had lost the power of choice to drink and use. I thought that when I woke up in the morning and I took swigs of vodka from the freezer that I was doing it because I was sad, I was doing it because I was, you know, hopeless. But really what had happened to me is that I, I had lost the power of, of choice and that I was going to drink no matter what, unless I found a, a spiritual connection. And so I end up driving home to California. I meet with this amazing woman uh, who is pretty much the only person that would talk to me at that time. She suggested that I start going to 12 step meetings. And I'm like, you're insane. Like I'm not doing that. You know, like it commit me to an insane asylum. I would rather go to an insane asylum than Alcoholics Anonymous. I, I would like, I'm, I'm just being honest. Like, and she was like, do you want to change your life? And I was hopeless enough at that point that I was. And so she said every morning, 6.30 AM, there's a meeting right up the street from your house. Your butt is in that seat every single day. And I was, so I went, you know, and I sat in the back and I judged. And then one day this woman told my story and she didn't look like me and she didn't have the same background as me, but she felt like me. And she talked about how she worked this program and she got a sponsor and she started to work these steps. And then she started to feel a little bit better sober because it's not about the drinking and the using it's how I feel sober. Because if I don't change the way that I feel sober, I'm going to pick up again. It is only a matter of time. So I started to take some suggestion. Uh, I got a sponsor at, uh, well, that's not entirely true. Uh, I <laughs> was fighting the sponsor thing for a while. I was like, you know what? I, I can do this thing on my own. I'm going to, and the woman who brought me to the program had 15 years, but she was doing church. She had four kids. Plus she just adopted two from Africa. She was like really encouraging me to find somebody more active in the program. 
And so, you know, I was just taking my time because I wanted them to look, act and smell like me and, and really wasn't open to the idea of sponsorship because uh, it's just not really, um, I'm just a self will run riot. That is, that is my, me to the T. So at 90 days uh, sober, this guy comes into my meeting and I'd never seen him before. He is fresh out of rehab. I didn't even really know what rehab was. And he and I went out to breakfast the day after that we met and he put his hand on my hand and he said, you're going to be my wife. And I said, I know. <laughs> and we got married three weeks later and uh, <laughs> I didn't like tell anyone. I just was uh, basically hey, this is, this is what I'm going to do. I feel like these are the promises coming true. I saw the promises on the wall. I hadn't worked one step and really just thought that this is what happens. You come into the fellowship, you go to some meetings and you get sober and life gets better. I had no idea that that's like the tip of the iceberg that really, you know, you're feeling better, uh, happens from the actual work that you do that that was like a placebo from hanging out with a bunch of happy people but whatever so he and I get married it doesn't work out <laughs> um, he ends up relapsing I'm devastated I have like six months now and I'm like gonna drink and that really forces me to go get a sponsor because I am in so much pain and uh she she basically told me you know, you can't just divorce this guy. Like you just played God. She's like, you're going to sit in this. We're going to do some inventory on this. Uh, you need to get some physical um, separation and some abstinence from him. And we're going to sort through this. Cause I wanted, uh, I wanted to annul it. I wanted you to delete him from my life. This wasn't really a thing This ever happened. And, uh, you know, thank goodness she made me uh, sit in it, do the work around it. And, uh, you know, that was a really painful thing for me. But because of that, and because of her direction, you know, I've worked uh, all 12 steps. I have, uh, you know, had incredible transformations. I'll have, it's mind blowing. I'll have seven years in November and um, I have a relationship with God, with myself. I was literally with my little nephew today, taking him mountain biking. My family didn't want me around ever. And, you know, I own uh, my own businesses now. I show up for people. I have, uh, you know, a sense of self-worth that I've never gotten. And I know that I'm, I'm so new um, and I'm still having, you know, these amazing uh, revelations. And I, you know, spend an hour with God every single morning. It's something that I cherish that if I don't spend time with God, you do not want to spend time with me. <laughs> like it is, it is ugly, but I can tell you for certain that Alcoholics Anonymous, the 12 steps sponsorship in the fellowship has been the best thing that has ever happened to me. And I'm so thankful that it didn't think of me what I thought of it because it has been accepting, loving, and has always been there. And when I didn't have anywhere to go for Christmas and Thanksgiving, I went to AA and I never, ever want to forget that. And I never, ever want to stop giving back to this program and helping people and inspiring people and letting them know that just because I, I might have a little time or a little less time, we are all doing this thing one day at a time. And we are all the same you know, six inches away from a drink, from my mind to my mouth, six inches away from a drink. And that this is about really changing my behavior, having a relationship with God and having a relationship with fellows. So I don't know if that helps you guys. Uh, I'm, I'm forever grateful that I can tell my story and, you know, maybe my liabilities will 
uh, be one of your assets <laughs> that you'll be able to learn from one of my mistakes. But I'm, uh, you know, you can find me on Instagram, SoCalCat, S-O-C-A-L-K-A-T-T-T. I own some treatment centers, uh, Laguna Shores, uh, Laguna Coast, and, uh, you know, I'm forever grateful for this thing that, um, you know, saved my life. And I know that I can't keep it unless I give it away. So feel free to call me uh, or, you know, reach out to me. SoCalCat uh, is my Instagram handle and I'm happy to help however I can. Thank you so much. That was awesome. Thank you, Kat. Thanks for sharing yeah. your story. It's amazing. It's so crazy how we can go from, from that, you know, to this, from, from that place totally. of disconnection and just consumption to such a place of service and, and um, you know, uh, sight for the future and, and everything that you are now. This is, it's, so, it's so amazing. So thank you again for, for sharing your story and, and telling us what it was like and what it's like now. I mean, it's huge. Yeah. Yeah, it really was amazing. And, and one thing that I, I just I, I can't express enough and, and I hope that if somebody's listening to this, they'll identify with this, um, that there's always it just seems within all of us, all of us, there's this feeling of just I don't belong. Right. Like that's it seems mm-hmm. to be most of like what drives us to to the solution, which is alcohol, you know, or, or a drug like, um, and it's, and it's just so magical when it happens. And, and like you said in your story, like, you know, you became determined to figure out how you were going to do this every day. Um, and, uh, and that's something that I totally identify with. And it's important to recognize that the reason that we talk like this is so that I can get hope from where you've found hope, right? Like I have the same thing in my story And when you talk about hope, I can see that you've been where I've been and look at you now, right? Like that gives me hope. And so we hope that this is going to do that for somebody else who's listening. And that's why we share these stories outside and why we do this in such a public way is because we, we want people to know that they're not alone. Yeah. You don't have to do this alone. We've been where you've been and there is a solution. Um, and so, yeah, your, your story was just amazing. I, I love the preacher's son, like all these attempts like that you had, you know, to, mm-hmm. just, to just try and live yeah. a certain way. And, uh, and the disease was coming after you. Yeah. Yeah. It seemed like, it seemed like there's always yeah. been a desire for a spiritual connection with inside you, which is something that I can really relate with. And, and fuck, just like you, I tried, I tried all the things that they said I needed to do, right? Like I, I tried all the stuff and then when none of it worked, I tried the Molly and cocaine, like, (laughs) you know, maybe, maybe I'm going to find God in an acid trip. And I think a lot of people can relate with that, right? Mm -hmm. Because, because uh, there's, there's two stories that were being told, you know, one of them is that God is this, um, this, you know, you know, you find him in the book in, in whatever religious book that is, you find him in your parents' church or what, whatever church that is, or your, you know, the, the belief that you're coming up in. And then there's this, this other story that's being told from the street side of things where, uh, you know, your friends are telling you about this incredible experience that they may have had. And I want that too. But again, you know, I'm broken. So obviously I'm not going to have the same experience you did, even though I'm going to try as hard as I can. But, 
you know, just like you in, in that area, I didn't find that connection anywhere I looked until I got sober and I looked inside. Right. Right. And that's when I finally found that, that connection that I'd been looking for was there the whole time. Mm -hmm. I just was too fucked up to look in the right place. (laughs) I could, I I would have never guessed that the answer was inside of me with a bunch of other alcoholics, you know? So, yeah. Right. And I couldn't stay stopped. Yeah. That's no matter how many times I tried, you know, I uh, I was reminded too of something that I heard um, early in recovery when you were sure, when I was listening to your story is is uh, just that wisdom comes from some of the most unexpected places and I think um, things can things can happen to us in the most unexpected ways and for you it sounds like one of these was Mr. Snaggletooth who <laughs> you know is sleeping under his desk. And he's the one that tells you, like, I think you have a problem. I I loved your response where it's like, do you even have an address? Like, what? But that's, I mean, but that's amazing, you know? Like, it's it's amazing that it it takes what it takes. And sometimes those bold punches to the face from, from, you know, people like that is exactly what we need. And it it sounds like that was a a lot of the case um, with him as well those moments of clarity where you just, it's like God or the universe gives you a mirror and you're like, Hey, here it is. You got to look at it. Mm -hmm. It's like, I don't want to see that, but you just like get hit right in the forehead and man, snaggle tooth. God use snaggle tooth for sure. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I think we've all had a snaggle tooth in our lives, you know, and, and, and thankfully, right. Thankfully for that, you know, right. And, and I, I really appreciate the way that you put that, uh, you know, we go into these, these states of addiction where we think that what we're doing is sowing our oats, like you were talking about, and we're finally free. We get out of a relationship or a job or, um, you know, uh, any situation we're finally out and we think we're free, but really we're just living lawlessly. And I, I love the way that you put mm-hmm. that, you know, the, and, and the distinction between the two that, that, that wasn't freedom. That was lawlessness. And what lawlessness brought you was deeper and deeper into your addiction. And yes. so I think that was very well put. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. So that was awesome. This is fun. You yeah. know, I could probably go on forever, but we don't have the time. I, I really enjoy talking about this stuff. I think your delivery of this message is very powerful and straightforward and it's really clear. I think you have a gift for being able to talk about where you came from, where you're at, how you got here, uh, what it took and what you use today in order to stay here and continue to grow. I think, I think that message that you're able to deliver in that way is just spot on. So thank you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Thank you guys. Thank you guys for the opportunity. You're so welcome, Kat. And I just want to mention, um, recently you spoke at, uh, at a, uh, was it a convention or? It was a, a it was like a recovery event. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And, uh, and where was that at? That was something called the magic house in Irvine. Um, or I'm sorry, in Anaheim, Anaheim. it's uh, a free resource. Yeah, for people um, that basically want to go to meetings, they do once a month, they do big events with 
DJs and it's just for anyone in recovery who wants to go, they have speakers and food and um, just, it's a really, really super cool environment called the magic house. If you guys are, are ever in town, I definitely um, would recommend yeah. you look it up. Yeah. Uh, Alika PRP is a big part of that. And sober Fasto sounds That's like right. yeah, there yeah, as well. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Great. Yeah, I just want to mention it. Like if you guys happen to live in the Anaheim area or um or anywhere nearby, it might be interesting to go check that out. Um you might see Cat, SoCal Cat, um and uh, or a number of different people that you've seen on the show and um it sounds like a pretty pretty good time. Yeah. They're they're having an event. By the time it's this airs, it'll it'll be out, but um Haley from um, she's recovery baddie recovery on baddie, Instagram yeah. is going out this weekend, uh, for, I think the same thing Kat did. I mean, by the time this airs, it'll be passed, but mm-hmm. yeah, but what huge. I'm, so thank you for, for plugging that. Yeah. Thank you. And, and I guess my point is if you happen to be in the area, you might get to see Kat in person delivering her message. Um, if you check out one of these events, so, yeah. um, Kat, this has been just absolutely wonderful. I, I can't thank you enough for, uh, thank for coming you guys. on the show and yes. for sharing your amazing story. And uh, we hope one day that we get to meet you IRL, as the kids say. What, I don't know what that is. Not a kid. <laughs> In real life. Oh. In real life. Oh, okay. <laughs> IRL. Nice. <laughs> Getting hip. You know, and if, if you want to follow Kat, again, she's on Instagram at... SoCal, SoCal cat. cat. Um, if if you three T's. I was gonna say it's a number of T's, isn't it? Yeah, it's there's. I've had like a bunch of weird people create fake accounts. I don't know. I guess that's a thing. Um, but yeah, SoCal Cat. S O C A L K A T T T. I just have one account. She's uh, work. She's working others. on her check mark. <laughs> right. I am. Yeah. So. Yes. Uh and then um, how can how can people look up your treatment center um, if they're struggling or they want to be um, get involved with that? Yeah, yeah. Um, we also do panels um, every Thursday night. Uh, if anybody is interested in coming to speak um, at one of our recovery centers, we we absolutely love that. Um, our website is www.lagunashoresrecovery.com or www.laguna-coast.com. Um, and you can also find them on my bio in uh, on Instagram at uh, SoCalCat. Perfect. Three T's. Okay. Beautiful. That's right. Um, we will have all that information in the show notes. Uh, so just click below or check us out on YouTube. Perfect. Yeah. Well, let's wrap it out. Yeah. Let's let Kat get back out in the sunshine. She gets to go like Uh. play in the ocean. (laughs) So great that you were able to join us. We're looking for for monkeys and snakes today. My, there's a couple monkeys here, but no snakes. Yeah. I say leave those snakes alone. (laughs) That sounds like Uh. a, a bad time. Yeah. Uh, so thank you again. There's there's I think that was seven. I think that was 17. We tried to get 17 more thank yous in. So Jordan, thank you for, right. for what you do. Rylan, you know, good looking out. Thanks, guys. 
to all the listeners that tune in. We can't thank you guys enough. What do you say? Should we get out of here? Yeah, let's get out of here. You want to say goodbye, Kat? We'll let you start. Bye, guys. Thank you so much. <laughs> this thank was great. <laughs> thank you. Yeah, with that, we will see. Yeah, we'll see you on the other side. Remember, you are worth the work. The Other Side of Hell is a do-it-yourself podcast. For more information, recovery resources, and contact info, check out our website at theothersideofhellpodcast.com. You can help us spread our message by liking and subscribing, giving us a follow, or a five-star rating.